You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon text today is Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, it is, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed from the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. All right, thank you. Well, I have been blessed to have some really great in-laws. Bree's family, she's the fourth of five, and they, uh, there are kids everywhere. So whenever we get together for Christmas or get together with family, any of those holidays, uh, it is just a madhouse. There are kids everywhere. There is food everywhere. There is noise everywhere. Um, and it's a great time because her family is very sweet and awesome. And her brother, Eric, he and I have a tradition that after everybody goes to bed, we stay up late and we watch the Born Trilogy, the Born Identity. We start with the Born Identity and he's always laying on the floor, probably snuggling a dog or something. And I'm sitting on the couch and we fall asleep halfway through the movie every time. Uh, But we wake up long enough to start the next movie and that's just sort of our tradition. We kind of laugh about it, that we stay up late and we watch the Bourne movies together. And the Bourne movies is about this guy who is found in the Mediterranean Sea. He's just floating there from some bullet wounds and uh, this Italian fisherman, they find him and they start treating his wounds and it turns out that this man knows multiple languages, he has got tremendous combat skills, but he has forgotten who he is. And so the, the whole trilogy is him trying to discover why he has these skills, why someone's trying to hunt him, and what the purpose of his existence is. He's, he has so many awesome things about him, he's got all these different identities and he's got all of these different histories, but he's forgotten all of it and he doesn't know why uh, why he exists, what he's here for, why someone's hunting him, and, wh- and what, his in- what the rest of his life is meant to be. And I think, actually, as I was thinking about our world and our lives, is I think that that's a fairly good metaphor for our lives as well, is that I think we live in a world 
where there are a lot of awesome things, a lot of sacred things, a lot of amazing things about humanity and the world and all this stuff. But we have forgotten our story. We, we don't know where it came from. And we, we all have this feeling that something is hunting us, something is wrong. Um, and we don't know what to do with all of this. I think we live in a world where that's the case, where we have lost our way, we've forgotten our identity, we don't know what all this is for. And what you find in the movies is that until he figures out who he is and what he was intended to do and be, he, will, he, he won't survive, he won't be able to trust people, he won't be able to accomplish what he needs to accomplish. And I think that's why we're in Genesis, is that in order to figure this whole life thing out, this whole culture thing out, this whole eternity thing out, we need to go back to the beginning. And so that's why we as a church are going to Genesis, is I think that it is easy, I think even for Christians, to misunderstand why we're here, why things are broken, what we're intended to do. How do we, how do we make sense of both the tremendous evil we see in the world and the, the undeniable good that we see in the world? Um, my college roommate is a police officer in uh, Omaha, and he was, just, he was just recently shot. And, um, and, and, and he was actually shot four times in the head and survived. And it was just phenomenal. I just talked with him yesterday for about an hour. He's from here. Um, Sam and I went to high school with him. It's, uh, it's just a, it's a tremendous story which has so much good in it and so much evil at the same time. And how do we make sense of that? And do we have the categories to understand like why, how something so evil could happen, and yet there's so much good that's coming out of this as well. What, how do we make sense of this? Um, and so that's why we're in Genesis, is because we are Jason Bourne. As a culture, as individuals, there's so much awesome, there's so much good stuff in the world, and yet we're being hunted, and we don't know why. And we don't know who to trust, and we assume this all means something, and is part of some big plan, but we don't know what, or how, or why, or when, or where. And Genesis gives us all of those answers. Genesis points us in that direction. So while we look at our world and wonder what this is all about, the categories that we need, the identity of who we are, we're finding in the book of Genesis. So that's why we're camping out here for so long and so much time in these first two chapters in particular is because we have got to recover who we are or we won't understand how this works. Okay, so that's why we're doing this. And so we're going to look today at verses 4 through 17 of chapter 2. And the title of our message is The God of Brilliant Design. How did God make this at the beginning? So Genesis is written in about the 1400s B.C. by Moses. Moses was called by God as an 80-year-old man. That's when his ministry began. So if you are older uh, in life, just realize that once you turn 80, God might call you to something. So there's no retirement for Moses. He gets his ministry assignment at the age of 80. And God uses him to deliver the Israelite people out of Exodus in just a phenomenally um, miraculous way, overcoming the, the world superpower of Egypt, and these slaves come out into the wilderness. And now it's just them and God. They have no supplies. They have, they've really, they have kind of this faint identity of who they are, but they're a new nation. They're gathered at this mountain. Their God is, by, is, is this fire on the mountain, and Moses, this 80-year-old, is leading them. And I think they're probably asking questions of like, so what is this for? What's this about? Our God is awesome, but we, we don't know him that well. Who are we supposed to be? And after 400 years of harsh slavery, they're out in the desert. And uh, that's when God has Moses write this Genesis account of how the world began and how they began as a people. They're in the desert. They're tired, but hopeful. 
They're fearful and vulnerable, wondering who they are, who this God is who just shook the world. What are we supposed to be doing? Where are we going? And the book of Genesis is the framework that they're to see their whole lives and to see the whole world. And that's true for us as well. And so we looked at the first chapter, Genesis 1, 1 to Genesis 2, 3 is really the prologue of the book of Genesis, which gets us into this human story. It tells us about how God created the world, how he created humanity. And here we're going to zoom in on chapter 2, where what God does is he goes back to day 6. The account goes back to day 6 and zooms in on this creation of humanity that we had. God made them male and female in his own image gave them a commission and then we had God resting on the seventh day and now we have in a sense sort of the beginning of the story of Genesis Um, and so we've got these human beings and God's going to zoom in so this isn't a second creation account as some have speculated but a zooming in a zooming in on this six-day creation of humanity and how this whole thing began so let's look first at Genesis and what I want to do is I want to show you God's brilliant design in the initial creation in five words I'm going to summarize our text in five words. We're going to walk through it in five words. History, bodies, breath, place, and covenant. Okay? So that's going to be the five themes, the five brilliantly designed themes that we see in this text that give shape to who we are as human beings, how the world works, where we're going. It's going to tell us what went wrong, um, or it's going to set us up for that. So the brilliant design of God's initial creation in five words, and then we're going to see that the God of brilliant design in new creation redeems these five things and commissions us along these five things. So that's where we're going today. So first of all, verse 4, we see the word history. We see a theme of history. Genesis 2-4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in that day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So history is what God decides to write his faithful story on the reality of humanity. So God graciously chooses the human story to display his faithfulness. We see that in chapter 2. He's created the world, and now he's going to tell his story through the word here, genealogy. These are the genealogies, or the generations, of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day of the Lord God had made the heavens, the earth, and the heavens. The Hebrew word is toledot, And it literally means these are the generations of. So it takes us that many words in English to to communicate this one word, toledot. And this happens ten times in the book of Genesis. This is the identifying marker. This is the chapter marks of the story of Genesis. And this is really where the story begins. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4, 2, 3 is an introduction. And now we have the beginning. We have chapter 1. These are the generations, Toledot, of the heavens and the earth. And this is going to happen ten times. In 1 through 2, 3 is chapter 1. God creates the heavens and the earth. I'm sorry, that's the introduction. Now we have the Toledot. 2, 4 to 4, 6, the descendants of the heavens and the earth. 5, 1 through 6, 8, the word Toledot shows up again and continues the story through of Adam's descendants. Then Noah's descendants in chapter 6, in chapter 10, the descendants of the sons of Noah. In chapter 11, the descendants of Shem. Again, the descendants of Terah in chapter 11. And then 25, the descendants of Ishmael. In 29, the descendants of Isaac. In 36, the descendants of Esau. And then in 37, the descendants of Jacob or Israel. God is choosing to tell his story on the canvas of human history. What a privilege that God is going to reveal his character through the 
the sequential linear unfolding of human history. And here we have the name of God. Whenever you have Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps in your Bible, you see that there? It is the word Yahweh in Hebrew. To this point, the only the God, Moses has used the word Elohim, the powerful one, the generic kind of title for God. Now he's using Elohim, uh, Yahweh Elohim. And that's God's covenant name, which we, we don't find out where that comes from until we get to Exodus. But we have it already being used here that, that the covenant God who made all things, Israel's God, is the one who created the whole world, created the human story, and is going to show his covenant faithfulness through the human story. That's going to be the canvas he's going to paint the picture on. This is pre-sin. That this is how God is going to do it. It's going to be human history that's going to unfold the character of God. The Bible is a book about God through the medium of human history. He could have done it a million different ways. He could have written the story and how he arranged the stars. He could have done it through, you know, um, nature in some sort of way. But he is choosing us. He's choosing human history to display the goodness of his character. We get the privileged position of being the paper that God writes his letter on. We get to be the carriers, the displayers of the faithful character of God. God graciously chooses the human story to display his faithfulness in history. It's God's design through time to do that. In verses 5 through 7, we see bodies. God physically forms human beings with his own hands. Look at this. Verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. See that God formed the man of dust from the ground. He spoke everything else into existence, but now he does something different when it comes to his image bearers. He hand makes them. Their bodies are specifically designed by the hands of God. God is doing a special work in humanity. And what's fascinating is he doesn't create it out of something else. He creates it out of the dust. So human beings are creatures. And so in that sense, we share the fact, the fact that we are not created ex nihilo, but created from the earth means that we have a solidarity with creation. We are creaturely in that sense. God takes things and the earth and makes a human being and he hand designs Adam. So you see something unique here that God has an intimacy with his creation and that our bodies matter. Human bodies matter because they're formed exactly as God intended them to be formed. So human bodies are creaturely. They're not made ex nihilo as other things, but they are creaturely. They are purposeful. We saw that in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God created man in his own image. And he created them, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the ground. God carefully handmade human beings, male and female, for a purpose, with an intention. And he does it differently than anything else he creates to get our attention that human bodies matter. Human bodies are sacred god has an intention for human bodies the human body is sacred and special a special creation of god and we see in psalm 139 13 through 16 that god is still making human bodies by hand 
So even after the fall and through the process of reproduction, God is still making human beings. He makes Adam and Eve in kind of a unique way that we're looking at this week and next week, from dust and from a rib. But he's continuing that same handmade work. We see that God still does that through the natural processes of reproduction. He is still handmaking this. Look at Psalm 139, 13 through 17. And listen to the language here of being handmade by God in the womb. For you formed my inward parts and you knitted me with your hands together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made, being made in secret, intricately woven, Again, that idea of handmade in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them in the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So cats, dogs, none of those can say that they are handmade by God. But human beings, every single human being, is portrayed in Scripture as being knitted together with God's very own hands. That God is intimately involved in every human creation. And human beings are handmade and so our bodies are sacred and have dignity and worth in a way that no other creaturely thing does. We share in that other creatures have bodies, so we share that in common, but there is something about the human body that is uniquely sacred that we can't just treat like we treat other physical things. Okay? So bodies. History, God's brilliant design in history to tell his story through human generations Secondly, God's brilliant design in bodies. God physically forms human beings with his own hands. Third, breath. God intimately animates human bodies with his own breath. Look at verse 7 again. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground. And so he's got this clay statue, so to speak, of Adam. Intricately handmade from the dirt. But it's just an inanimate object. And he speaks the animation of all others, but he does something unique with this one. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Man is a creaturely body, but not only a creaturely body. He actually has, every human being has the very breath of God. Adam and all humans are animated by the very breath of God. So there is something something supernatural, eternal, that's God-like about every single human being. Their consciousness is somehow breathed into them by God. Human beings are dichotomous. They have bodies, but they also have a spiritual aspect. They're physical and non-physical at the same time in a way that no other creature is. Creaturely, physical, bodies, and yet a supernatural, divine-like breath in them. We call this the image of God. So human beings have dignity and worth. Their bodies are handmade by God, but they also have the breath of God in them. And look at the intimacy of this. Have you ever breathed into someone's nostrils before? Give it a shot. No, don't give it a shot. That is weird and incredibly intimate. So God, God, we we get this sense of, of, of God taking on kind of what we call anthropomorphic. He's taking on kind of human characteristics. God doesn't have physical hands in the sense that we do, but it says that we're handmade. He's, he's, he's using what he did to create humanity. He's using... He's using human-like terms to get us to understand how intimate that God is right here intricately weaving the human body and then he draws so near to that human body as to actually 
press his lips on the nostrils and breathe his divine life into them. There is an animation to the human being that is so uniquely intimate with God and it's actually his very breath that makes that person a living soul, a nephesh, a living creature, as the Hebrew says, a living creature. So the Imago Dei tells us that there is something about the human being that is eternal and moral and seeking of justice that has the ability of language and love and intelligence that is different from any other creature, and that's the godlike breathness of people. Whether they believe in God or not, God has been kind to animate every human being with his own divine breath, his own divine God-breathedness. So human beings are both sacred in body and unique. have a unique god given dignity and worth and power in that they are animated by the very breath of God. Human consciousness is unique because it comes from God himself and is like God himself. So we see that God has brilliant design in history, in brilliant design in human bodies, brilliant design in, in breath. He breathes his own life into human beings. And then look at place. God lavishly furnishes a physical human home. They live in bodies. It's his breath living in these creaturely bodies and he gives them a lavish home. He lavishly furnishes a human home. Look at verses 8 through 14. God's brilliant design when it comes to place and home and location and nature. And the Lord God, again, Lord God, the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, Elohim, planted a garden in Eden in the east where there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life that was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And I love this, verse 12, and the gold of that land is good. It's good gold. Bedellum, I don't know if you, that's how you say it, Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, or Egypt. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flowed out of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Where's the Garden of Eden, or where was the Garden of Eden? We don't know. Uh, there's been speculations about this, because we see a couple of the rivers that we recognize. We see some others that we, we don't recognize I think the flood totally changed the game on this thing. So I, think it, I don't think it's helpful to try to figure out where it is. I think we need to see what this says about God and that God provided them an extravagant home. He brilliantly designed a place for his living creatures. These dust and divine breath combined to live, which says something about our God. Our God is not a stingy God. He's not a stingy God, and he loves beauty. Just look at the world around, even though it's fallen. Look at how much beauty there is in nature and how much brilliant design as a gift to humanity. God cares about beauty and enjoyment, and he wants his human beings to do that as well. These brilliant rivers and more than enough resources and food and trees. Just think of the creativity of God in what he did in nature. God went to a lot of effort and work, and he planted so many different things for us to discover just think of this like we are still figuring out how big the galaxies are we still haven't gotten to the end of that and yet we st- we, we, we don't we, we we can't fully take in how big this thing is and then we also keep finding smaller and smaller elements of the atom and molecules 
God went to such an extent to show brilliant design and kindness and beauty and intricacy. God cares about all of these things. God cares about these, the world that we live in. And he wasted no, he spared no expense, so to speak, to create a wonderful place and home for his image bearers. Notice God's love of beauty and enjoyment. It's good gold. Notice the sensory delights and the aesthetic features. Created things just to be enjoyed, just to be pleasing to the eye. God doesn't do a building project on the cheap. He's not stingy. He's extravagant and creative and generous. And he gives them a sustainable and rich land and then gives them the freedom to enjoy it and expand it and develop it. Have fun. Have a great time enjoying and discovering all of the little treasures that I have placed in this place for you. It's an amazing, it's an amazing God who has a brilliant design in terms of the place that he has created for humans to, to habit, habitate, to have as a home. And then in verses 15 and through 17, we see a covenant. Justin brought this up a couple weeks ago, this, this idea of covenant. covenant we, have, we don't have the word covenant here, but what we do have is we do have the elements of a covenant, is that God is, is, is relating to these human creatures this combination of divine breath and dirt, well-crafted dirt. He's placed them in a brilliant, resourceful, lush, expensive place. And now he's entered into a covenant with them. They have agency. He enters into a consequential relationship, a relational agreement with humanity. God enters a consequential relational agreement with humanity. And humanity's decisions will matter. Humanity will have a choice in front of it and it will plunge this wonderful creation. It will, it will go one of two directions. And it's, it's, it's imaged by these two trees that God places in the garden. Look at verses 15 through 17. Then the Lord God, Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, the covenant-keeping God, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. There's his purpose. This lavish home, enjoy it, protect it, expand it verse 16 and the and the lord god yahweh elohim commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it for in the day you eat of it surely you shall die which is a covenant it's an agreement okay my world my terms you're made in my image and i'm going to give you agency i'm going to give you responsibility i'm going to give you consequential choice here your decisions are going to matter in this and i'm going to enter an agreement with you and here's the terms of the agreement there's two trees that represent two paths for humanity one is the path of life to enjoy to the fullest extent everything that god has for you in this garden and to expand it to to discover even more of it to develop it to take the good that i've given you already and experience even more of it which is the tree of life. But there's also a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where what you can do, Adam, if you want, is that you can choose to go your own way. You can make this world the way you want it to be. You can decide for yourself what is good and what is not good, and you will know both good and evil, and at that moment, you will be cutting yourself off from me. You will die. To be in right relationship with me in obedience is life. To disobey me and go your own way is death to be cut off. And Adam now has this consequential decision in front of him. In a world full of yes, there's only one no. 
And because Adam does take the, tru- the fruit, spoiler alert, he does take the fruit, and it does plunge the entire existence under a curse where death is now the dominant reality. Death just wins over everything now because of Adam's choice. We now live in a world where there is a bunch of no and only one yes, which is Christ. There's only one way back into a relationship with God. No other way, no other experience, no matter how great and wonderful, will get us back into a relationship with God. A world that Adam originally was inhabiting where everything was going to glorify God. Every action, every experience, everything was going to be enjoyable and glorifying to God. Now, because of the fall, everything has the potential to be an idol, to be a rival, to kill us, to rival God, to be used for sinful purposes. That was not the case before. Everything was used for the glory of God. Now everything is, seems to be or has the potential to be used for evil. But there's one way back in. In a world full of yes, there was one no. And Adam took that no. And now the world is a world full of no with one yes. But praise God, there is a yes. There is a way back to him. There is a way back to the tree of life. There is a way to overcome the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's two trees that represent two divergent directions for human history. One tree is a sacrament, a promise, an offer of grace. To, to, To be in a place where there's just always ever increasing delight and joy and glory in God. Adam, it will only get better from here if you eat of this tree. This will, the, this will be the worst human existence will ever be if you ob- obey me. Keep on this tree of life and fill the earth and it will only get better from here. But if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the, tr- the other tree is a test. And if you eat of that tree, this is the best the world will be unless I act. It will only get worse from here, Adam. And so Adam has a choice, two trees from which to eat from. And it's not like God just kind of left it open-ended. He told him what to do. All right? So this is a true-false test, right? This is a, there's a multiple choice, two options. I'm just going to tell you which one to take, right? I'm going to tell you this answer will is the wrong one, you'll fail. This is the right one, you'll live, right? So this was not... A blind taste test, this was a true, clear covenant that was going to determine the future of this realm that God had made. All of this history, our bodies, the divine breath, um, the place, the covenant, all hanging on these two trees and what Adam and Eve will do with them. God sets both options before Adam and clearly communicates the decision before him and its consequences. God's not pulling a trick on them. He lays it out very clearly how this goes. Humanity has agency, responsibility. We have a responsibility to maintain, promote, and expand the kindness and faithfulness and glory and goodness of God. Or human beings can choose to sabotage it and themselves, which, of course, they do. And so now, if you think about it in these terms, think of these five words now, is that now human history knows both good and evil. You now read the human story, and it's full of good and evil, right? We now know in our bodies, because of this, Adam took of this tree, and we're now descendants of that Adam, and we've taken of the tree. We were born guilty, we were born in sin, we were born under the curse, but we've also been complicit, haven't we? 
to want to define our own reality. And so now we experience in our own bodies both good and evil, right? Our bodies now know good and evil in a way that's very destructive and painful. Our souls know good and evil now, don't they? You've been hurt, abused, and you've done the same to others. You've used that divine breath, uh, maybe for some good, but also for evil. The world, the place that God has given us now knows good and evil. We have natural disasters. We have pandemics. Our world knows good and evil. And now even human decision-making, human agency, the covenant's broken, and we see human beings make decisions about good and evil, right? Do you see? See the two paths? God's brilliant design here. And humanity rejected it, turned it upside down, corrupted it. So the question then is how can it be made right? How can good and evil be divorced and separated from each other again? They're so intermixed. How can they be divorced, separated, without tearing apart everything? That's the big question. How can human history now be life-giving when it's under a curse? How can human bodies be glorified? cleansed of sin and made right without destroying them? How can human spirits, how can that breath of God be redeemed? How can how can good and evil be separated again? How can they be how can how can a place be totally good once again? How can we get back to our intention? Who, and the real question is who, could ever possess the will and the power and the opportunity to undo what has been done? Who has the power to undo what's been done, to restore these five things. And not only who has the power, but does that one who has the power have the will? And this is what the Bible holds out, is that God, the God of the Bible, not only has the power to restore those things that have been broken, but has the will to do it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. And so now we see that God has intention to make a new creation. And that new creation is brought in by Jesus. And look at these five things. The God of brilliant design, Jesus, enters by human genealogy. You see that? By Toledot. Matthew 1.1 starts like this. Your New Testament. The Old Testament ends and there's 400 years of silence and it's just like, well, maybe that's it. Maybe God gave us our shot through the Mosaic Law. We screwed it up, and that's it. And he would have every right to walk away. Maybe his will is done. He has the ability, but maybe God just doesn't care anymore. Maybe he's not willing to do it anymore. Maybe we've just failed too much. And Matthew 1.1 says, This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God. No, God hasn't given up. He is going to write his faithful story through the history of human beings. And your New Testament starts with a genealogy. You've probably wondered about that. Like, couldn't it start a little more interesting than a list of names that I don't care about? And God's like, no, you missed this. The first book of the Bible was all about how human history was going to display the glorious promise and character of God. And it looked like that was lost forever. And Genesis and Matthew 1 starts with, no, the Toledot's still in play. Human history still matters. God's faithfulness is going to be displayed because Jesus himself is going to enter it. And you have a list of names and it gets down to Matthew 17. So are all the generations of Abraham to David were 14 generations. 
And from David to the deportation of Babylon was 14 generations. And the deportation from Babylon to Christ was 14 generations. And you find out that God was arranging human history all along to present his faithfulness. The Genesis 2-4 promise is still there. The importance of Toledot was still there. He enters to fix the problem via human genealogy. Human history is the story of God's faithfulness. Not only that, the God of brilliant design enters with a human body. He enters with a human body. The one who has the ability and the will to fix this will do it via the means of a human body. He will bear the curse as a human being in his body. Of all the ways that God could have done it, and I don't know, this was how the divine mind of God calculated this is the only way. This is the only way to do it is that if I go down and enter their history, enter into one of their broken, flawed bodies, and I redeem it from the inside out. John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory in a human body. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of the creation. And what we see is that in the ministry of Jesus, he restores human bodies. Do you see that? He's reversing the curse because God cares about human bodies. So he heals diseases. He raises the dead. And he himself resurrects in a real human body. And he ascends in a real physical human body. And Jesus is right now at the right hand of the Father in a real physical human body. The human body is sacred and now a part of God's own existence for the rest of eternity. Human bodies are sacred, and God himself now has taken on human flesh for eternity. God's brilliant design in salvation through one who has a human body. And the God of brilliant design also gives eternal life by his own breath. John 3 says this, Do not marvel when I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone that is born of the Spirit. And the idea of spirit and wind and breath are all tied together in the Scriptures. God's breath, God's Holy Spirit, God's wind is all part of this. And no one can be made spiritually alive unless they have the divine breath breathed back into them. John 20, 21 through 22, Jesus resurrects from the dead and he's in his physical body and he appears in this room with his disciples and they're a little freaked out. And look at what Jesus says. Jesus says to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And that harkens back to God breathing life into the nostrils of the dirt man now God in the flesh comes in his resurrected body and now he is breathing life into those who would follow him. And they now have the divine breath restored in them by the words of Jesus, by the work of Jesus. There is a new creation work that's happening in Jesus. And we see that the God of brilliant design in Jesus is going to recreate our physical human home. Second Peter 3.13 says, But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation 21, listen to this. The place that God has for those who will trust in him is even better than the place humanity started in. 
Listen to this. Revelation 21, I'm going to read a big chunk of this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Not just a garden with two people, but now a city filled with all the nations. Developed. What Adam and Eve were intended to do in the garden, which was to extend culture and make this place habitable, God decided to do himself, and he brings down a city. God will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The death shall be no more. So that tree, the knowledge of good and evil that brings death, yeah, that thing's been reversed. That thing has been destroyed, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And just look at the luxurious beauty, the expensive nature of the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 18, the wall was built of jasper and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper and the second sapphire and the third agate and the fourth emerald and the fifth onyx and the sixth carnelian. The seventh, chrysolite, and eighth, beryl, ninth, topaz, and tenth, chrysoprase, I don't know, and the seventh, jacinth, and the, four, and the twelfth, amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the city, the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. And so human bodies are going to be glorified like Jesus' were, and they're going to be put in a place that's far more extravagant than the Garden of Eden ever could have been. God himself will create a beautiful place for people to dwell with him. That Genesis 2 reality, it's going to be there and even better at the end because of this God of brilliant design from the beginning through the middle, through the fall and redemption is going to bring a consummation that is even far better than where we began. And the God of brilliant design turns the tree of curses into the tree of life. It talks about Jesus dying on a tree, and it says in the scriptures that anyone who dies on a tree is cursed. And I don't think it's by accident that this idea of the tree motif, that there's a tree of life and there's a tree of death, Christ himself on the cross endures the consequence of the tree of death. The cross becomes both a tree of death and for those that will trust in him, a tree of life. And on that place, he takes the curse that Adam and Eve received in the garden and he extends again the promises and the salvation and the eternal life that they, that they forfeited in the garden. And so you have this picture of a tree. Jesus dies on the cursed tree that we might have access to the life-giving tree. All that is ultimately good comes colliding with all that is ultimately evil at the cross. Human sin and all of its wickedness. The creation destroying its creator. And yet in that moment, you see all the goodness of God on display. Good and evil go into the ground and only goodness resurrects. 
The evil is left in the grave forever and Jesus arises. And all who are with him will have the evil that is in their bodies and in their souls buried with him and raised to new life with nothing but good ahead for the Christian. You see this? Each and every human being is standing before the cross with a, tri- with a decision. Is this cross my tree of life? Or will it be my curse? To come to the tree of the cross and desire life from Christ is to have it breathed back into you. To turn away is to take from the tree of death. And that cross hangs over the human being as a curse. God weaved this master plan together today to put you before the two trees. Will you choose your own way? Or will you take from the tree of life, from Christ himself? For those who take from the tree of death, it only gets worse from here. The story, our bodies, the breath, the place, all of that simply gets worse under the judgment of God. But at the cross, for those who choose to receive Christ by faith, turn away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and turn to the tree of life, Christ himself, it only gets better for the Christian Not necessarily in this life, but ultimately is what we mean. In eternity, we're destined for a better place. So you're standing before two trees. You're standing before the cross. Will you take from the tree of life or will you take from the tree of your own self-determination? You'll decide for yourself. God has laid the terms out. I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. Come to Christ and be destined for all of this to be restored. Just a couple final things here. If you have trusted in Christ, you've taken from the fruit of the cross, then you are reinstated and recommissioned into your Genesis 2 privilege and opportunity to be his agent for good in the world. The image of God is being put back together in the, in the Christian. This is why God doesn't just take us to heaven immediately when, he die, when we die, because he wants us to be agents of his kingdom now. And as people are having the image of God slowly transformed in our hearts, we now have the opportunity to try to to be God's ambassadors in the world, to take up that, that image of God mantle and begin to work for good as we were intended to from the very beginning. Which means that as an agent of the kingdom, if you're a follower of Christ, the image of God is being put back together. You are now stepping into your God given role as an image of God. As an, as an image bearer of God, that Genesis 1 and 2 mantle is now being restored and put back on you and you have consequential actions to take. You're recommissioned as agents of the kingdom. And as agents of the kingdom, we deal honestly with our history. See these five words? We deal honestly with our history and look for God's faithfulness in it. We, we live in a time when a lot of our history is being canceled or reinterpreted and Christians are honest about both the human frailties and evil, but also ultimately look in their own family stories and in the stories of human history the way God is working, um, his faithfulness working. You see what I'm saying? So Christians love history, and they love honest history because the honest history displays the splendor of God. So as Christians, we love biblical history, We want to know our Bibles because we want to trace the hand of God. 
and the sinfulness of man, but mostly the faithfulness of God. We love church history because we're not the first ones to come on this planet and we're not the first ones to experience both good and evil and see God prevail. We love church history and we love human history. We want our kids and our grandkids to tell the stories of our faithfulness to God. We want there to be a legacy because God wants there to be a legacy. That's why God wrote this book as a big story. And we love stories, we love human stories, and so we're going to deal honest with the evil parts of our own stories, but we're also going to trace and highlight the goodness of God's story. Do you see what I'm saying? As agents of the kingdom, be historians. Love the biblical story, love church history, love your own story, and pass the story down to your kids. May your kids and your grandkids still possess one of your Bibles and be speaking of how you walked with God how God transformed your family tree. So we love genealogy, we love history, we love procreation, we love all of these things because that's how God made it from the beginning and as agents of his kingdom, we have the opportunity to reclaim that in the world. Secondly, as an agent of the kingdom, we honor the human body as sacred. This is why issues of modesty, physical fitness, this is why abuse is so terrible is because physical bodies matter. And it is wrong for us to use our sacred physical bodies to inflict pain on another human being that's been handmade by God. This is why addiction is so destructive. It's because our human bodies are sacred and to mess with the chemicals. This is why medicine is so important. God has made human bodies the way he wants them to, to work and the fall destroyed that. And this is why Christians down through history have been the innovators in medicine, the inventors of medicine and hospitals, is because human bodies matter to the Christian. This is why Christian burial is such a big deal, is that we want to honor that body as we bury it. We don't just dispose of it as if it means nothing because no, Christ is going to raise that body. So that's why Christian burial has historically been a big deal and why Christians have generally wanted to not do the cremation thing. I don't want to go into a big deep thing there, but that's more of an Eastern, dispose of the body, it's useless, whatever. The Christian goes, no, it's worth the expense of burying a body to show that it's sacred and Christ is going to resurrect it. This whole Me Too movement is an indication that our culture is recognizing that we're not just bodies. That to mistreat someone sexually is a violation of something sacred. We're not just animals acting on instinct. This Atlanta spa shooting thing. Eight people dead, six of them Asian. 21-year-old man with sexual addiction that feels like he needs to destroy other bodies in order to deal with the perversions in his own bodies. So messed up and so wrong. And why do we know that's wrong? Even if we don't believe there's a God, there's something in us. Something in us that does come from God. That human bodies matter. Our gender that's assigned by God matters. Medicine matters. Health matters. Modesty, fitness, abuse, addiction. All of those things matter because bodies are handmade by God. And our culture is losing that. And it's the image of God people. It's the people being remade by God who have the opportunity to show how good and glorious the, bo the body is as God created it and intended it to be. So we don't have to get in big fights about this, but we do honor one another's bodies and our own bodies in all these different ways. And you could talk at lunch about a hundred other ways 
that the implication of the human body being sacred is important for image bearers who are being redeemed by Christ. Agents of the kingdom prioritize the spiritual well-being of each human because we are divine breath. Even the people you disagree with, even the most evil people in the world, have the divine breath of God in them. They are made in his image. What this means for Christians is that our thoughts and our words, our actions, our affections, our intentions, artistry, story, all of those things that make us as human beings unique are God-given and should be used for his purposes. So if you just are an incredible speaker, you're an incredible artist, you're an incredible whatever, you have the responsibility now to steward that in a way that images God. That, that part of you that other creatures can't do in the world, but you can do, and maybe not even other humans can do, you have an opportunity to image that, to take that divine breath, and it's being put back together to image God well. John Piper says it this way, we care about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. Because some of those who have the divine breath of God will be separated from God forever, and we want God to redeem every person. So we share the gospel with people because we want God to have his divine breath back and for it to be used for his glory. As an agent of the kingdom, we love and care for the natural world. We understand that God has given us a beautiful place to steward. And so we're, not going, to, we're going to steward the resources of God's good creation. We love beauty and we want to preserve beauty in the world. We shape the world for function and attractiveness. We enjoy and not exploit the resources of the world. I think it's sinful to think, well, God's going to remake it anyway, so we might as well just, just rape it to just use it and deplete it and destroy it because God's going to remake it anyway. There's nothing about that in the Bible. So I'm not trying to get into some big environmentalist thing, but I do think that image bearers made in his image care about the stewardship of his creation, care about animals and creatures and natural beauty and want to promote and use and shape it in a way that looks like Genesis 2 and ultimately is aimed at Genesis 21. And then, so we, we value extravagant, aesthetic, meaningful, art, artful things. And we love being generous with what we've created, with what we have, because our God has been generous and loves beauty. And then lastly, we value the ability of human beings to make decisions. God gave human beings agency and enters into covenant with them. And so we value communication. We communicate that decisions have consequences that human beings have a unique power in their words and their decisions to affect more than just themselves but others. And so we live that out in a way that our words and our actions have consequences beyond what we know. And so we're going to do the right thing. We're going to do those things because they please God and they have consequences. And likewise, we're going to warn people that their decisions have consequences, but we're also going to let them, we're going to honor their decisions. That if they choose to reject Christ, we ought to warn them, we ought to plead with them. But we also need to realize that God has given them the ability to turn from him if they want to. So this idea of human agency, we aren't going to coerce anyone. We're not going to hold anyone at gunpoint to convert. We believe that God can persuade the human heart, that God does persuade, that he makes alive those people. And we know that not all choices are equal. We believe that what God commands is for our good and to go against that command is to turn to evil. So, so many things to think about, so many things to discuss, but I would love for you to just think of those five words, history, bodies, breath, place, and covenant, and think through those things and go, what does it look like now? Now that we know where we were, what we were designed for, now we can see clearly what has gone wrong, 
And now in Christ, as he restores those five things, how ought we to live in light of those five things? Our history, our bodies, the divine breath that we possess, the place that we live, and the decisions that we have, this new covenant that we now are in with God. Let's bow and let's pray. God, I thank you for Genesis 2 and just how clear it is, how, what a strong word it is for us to think through how you carefully, brilliantly designed and crafted the world in Genesis 2 and how you clearly crafted the intention of history, the intention of bodies, the intimacy of your divine breath, the extravagance of the place we get to live, and the agency that you have now given us, the ability to now walk in covenant with God through Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the world in this way, and that we would respond as your people in, uh, in really uh, dramatic ways that look so much different than the rest of our culture. As they're like Jason Bourne trying to figure out why things are the way they are, we now know who we are. We understand what's in front of us. We know where we're going. And we can speak truth and life into the world through Jesus Christ. So God, help us to come to the cross, to trust in him, and to be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.